All right, let's say good morning to everyone again and a happy Father's Day to all the fathers. <laughs> yes, we get remembered once in a while. <laughs> Thank God for fathers too, right? Today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. And this is our continuing series in the book of Exodus. And we still have a number of messages. I don't know where the Lord will have us to end. But I know for now that we're going to get to the Red Sea. Because I have some nuggets that I got. <laughs> Wonderful nuggets. But the matter of which we are gathered to hear concerns the person of Christ, the matter of your salvation, and what God says about these things, things that are eternal. And when we come together, we have to speak of those things that are eternal, things that respect your meeting with your maker. That's the real issue that the Bible was given to address by giving us the knowledge of what God has done. So the Bible is a recording of God's mind of what he was going to do and what he has done. So if we get together and we don't hear about what God has done, we did not hear from God. Church is about hearing what God has accomplished in the salvation of his people to bring his people to himself without blame, above reproach, holy, righteous, all those things God has done already in Christ Jesus. So if we're reading the scriptures correctly, we should always find that testimony. It doesn't matter where we go. God has always been preaching the same message. He's a master of repetition. There's not a single person who repeats things more than God does. He's a master of repetition. So we'll go to Exodus 12, verse 1 to 14. And good morning to everyone who has joined us. I pray God will grant you what you need to hear this morning. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 to 14, and I'm reading from the New King James. Moses recorded for us and said, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the gods. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall 
take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Verse 9, do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water but roasted in fire its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the lost Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. We shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And that is the word of the Lord. For titles, we have two of them. And this is our message 129 in the Communion Old Testament says. When I see the blood. That's our title. Number one. And number two title, which is also good enough to carry the message, is the plague of the firstborn. The plague of the death of the firstborn. The plague of the death of the firstborn. And we are back to Exodus the movement of God's people from their captivity, from their slavery in Egypt. And this story happened as an unfolding of the history of redemption. In this story, you have all that you need to know about your salvation. In this story, just what we've read. If we preach it by God's wisdom, it has everything you need to know about your standing before God, about God's attitude towards you who believe. It's all contained in this story, in these instructions. Okay, So God was teaching his people the matters and issues of salvation and how it has to be accomplished and by whom. And we say that unless one is well initiated into the matter of God's absolute sovereignty over all things and the gospel itself, they will not be able to get anything useful gospel-wise from this story or any other story for that matter. Okay, that's why people struggle with the stories of David and Bathsheba, with the Rahab and all these seemingly morally revolting stories, Tamar and Judah, and some even saying, as Sean was telling me, that some preacher was saying, you should not even be reading that story of Judah and Tamar or something to that effect because it is just morally... What's the word I'm looking for? 
uh, just morally is not right. Uh, you don't want children to know these things of story, these types of stories. And I'm like, Lord have mercy, you know. <laughs> okay. So many will use these stories for moralistic teaching, for character assassination and how-to messages. And yet God was preaching Christ. And where Christ is preached, we must find the elements of the gospel. And also, we find that which comforts us. Where Christ is, we should find comfort. Okay? So for the purposes, or for the purpose of those that have not been following our messages, you are highly encouraged to follow each and every message because of the kind of detail that we bring in each message. And the messages are multi-layered. They are woven together like that. If you listen one message after the other, you realize what I'm talking about. So, especially when it comes to typology, because I define some things at the beginning of the messages that I may not put as much emphasis in the letter messages because I'm assuming that you've been following, okay? So we cannot understand these stories if we do not understand the gospel itself, as I said before. And the New Testament is what provides the key to unlock the gospel mysteries that is in these stories, especially the person of Christ, because Christ is the key He's the one who opens the doors of anything and everything. And when Christ opens things, especially the mind, the understanding of the mind, he is the one who opens it so that we are able to see what we need to see. So Israel has been in Egypt for close to 430 years and they has arisen a king who did not know Joseph. And that means a king who did not feel indebted or obligated to Israel on account of what Joseph had done for this nation in saving it from a massive famine that had ravaged it. And Joseph, with God-given wisdom, had provided salvation to this nation in the form of food and many peoples around it, including even Joseph's own family that was then living in Canaan. And Joseph, by this time, had died. But we must know that God is the writer of the script. It's not Moses. It is God who is writing God's script. God himself. He is the originator by his spirit. He is the one who inspired the story and caused everything to happen the way it happened. So this story is not about Egypt and Israel's experience in a foreign land just as a historical record as a lot of people say, or that's just a record for Israel to know that they were once in slavery in Egypt. End of story. <laughs> Not at all. This was God preaching. And when God preaches, he has one person in mind, and that is Christ Jesus. 
And yes, that is how long God preached this sermon. Exodus sermon, 400 years, 400 something years of preaching. And you complain that my sermons of one hour and 45 minutes are too long. (laughs) So God set up the stage to teach the matter of salvation. And we know that the matter of salvation revolves around the matter of law and sin and its judgment. And that relationship is key in understanding the matter of Christ and what he accomplished for his people and what God was preaching in Egypt. And these things and the theology around them are always important to remember when trying to understand the gospel from stories. When you have a story in the Bible, look for the themes of sin, law, and judgment because they are recurrent themes that God presents in different ways. Okay, So we're going to see that theme of sin and law and judgment in Egypt And God will say, come differently. And for example, in the story of David and his son Absalom, the law is presented in a different way. You have a guy, Absalom, who is the most beautiful man in Israel. So beautiful that God described him in feminine terms. And yet he was the most ruthless person in Israel. So how do you have... Someone who is so beautiful and yet so ruthless. They don't go well together. They should not go well together. So what is God teaching? God is teaching that the law is holy and good, but it kills. (laughs) That's what Absalom is carrying as a testimony. You know, So Absalom has to be killed. How? By hanging. He ends up getting hanged. And when that happens, David goes back to the throne because David is a type of Christ. So the law is not on the throne, even though it's beautiful. It brings the testimony of being ruthless. Okay? So God put Israel under slavery to Pharaoh. It's God who did. And Pharaoh was only in the picture as an instrument to do God's bidding. He was clueless of what God was doing. But God does not need anyone to understand anything for him to use them. <laughs> God will use you. doesn't ask for your permission. He doesn't even need you to know why you are doing what you are doing. As long as he is the one doing it. So God caused Pharaoh to feel threatened by the increasing numbers of the children of Israel. Which obviously was something that God was doing behind the scenes to drive things to their appointed end. Psalm 105, 24 to 26. Psalm 105, 24 to 26. The psalmist says, He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. That is in reference to Israel in Egypt. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. 
He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. Now you're going to hear some people saying, God does not cause evil in people. It is because they are ignorant of the God of the Bible. They are ignorant of the scriptures. Verse 25 of Psalm 105 says, God turned their heart to hate his people. So the hatred that Egypt had towards God's people was caused by God. And very few (laughs) can declare that truth without trying to launder it till it does not say what it actually says. They will try to launder it. Put some perfume to it. Okay, some drying sheets with that. (laughs) They'll be trying to clean it up and then they'll try to run to the book of James and say, God does not do that. For he does not tempt any man with evil. But they do not understand or know how to read James either because James was not speaking to the origin of sin. That's not what he was talking to. It's a topic for another day. So Pharaoh determined to put to death the children of Israel but to no avail. God frustrated his purpose through the midwives. Thus Pharaoh determined to double down and weaken God's people by putting them under slavery, sentencing them to hard labor, brick making. And when the people of Israel complained, protested about the matter, Pharaoh multiplied their tasks and made their lives even more miserable. He said to his taskmasters, No more straw for these people. They should go and get their own straw, but the quarter of bricks could not be changed. The number of bricks that they had to make every day could not be changed, even though now they had to look for all the building materials for themselves. And right there, God introduces us to the proper understanding of the law and also to the person of Pharaoh in the theology of salvation. Who really is Pharaoh? And God is saying the law has an unbending standard that cannot be changed just because you can't do it. The law requires that you go find your own straw, your own righteousness, every day, and yet the standard is never relaxed for you. Even if you are sick, it doesn't care. You still have to be righteous. You still have to make the thousand bricks. You are hungry, doesn't care. Pharaoh doesn't care. He wants his one thousand bricks. So what? that's what the law is saying. The law is saying you have to be righteous every day second of your life every single day from when you were born to the time that you die and God does not change its requirement as Pharaoh did not change the requirement of the quarter of bricks that had to be made by the children of Israel on a daily and weekly basis. Also, under the decree of Pharaoh, 
The people became weak and discouraged because of the hard labor. And they're telling us what the Lord does to a sinner. It increases the burden on them. It weakens them and leaves them hopeless, realizing that its demands cannot be met. The law makes weary and heavy laden. That's why Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because the law never gives a sinner rest. And anyone who does not know that does not understand the law. They do not know what the law is actually saying. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? (laughs) Because it takes one to be bewitched for them to say they're trying to do the law. So Pharaoh was a picture of God who was working his commands and decrees through the taskmasters. The taskmasters are the picture of the commandments of the law because it is they that enforce your obedience to an impossible task that has been set by Pharaoh's decree. Each individual command of the law is a taskmaster of the law. God's taskmaster to account for your sin. Every one of the commandments of the law is coming to Katie every morning and say, have you done this commandment? Have you done this other commandment and this other commandment? And before you know it, Katie is struggling under the weight of 613 taskmasters. Each one of them coming and asking for her to do a different thing. Do you see how burdensome this thing is? Okay. So the children of Israel cried out to God for help. And that is the proper response of anyone who has understood the law. They cry out to God for help, for deliverance. Not help to do the commandments. No, to be delivered from the commandments. And God in response comes and says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And they've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their souls. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So the God of our salvation knows and hears the oppression and afflictions of his people, especially because of sin. And he told Moses that he had come down to deliver them out of their oppression. And so that defined for us the mission of the incarnation of Christ. The coming of Jesus in the flesh is called the incarnation. So he came for the salvation of his people from their sins, from or because of the taskmasters who were laboring under sin, law, and death. That's the testimony of the taskmasters. Sin, law, and death. So Christ is he who was in the burning bush. Christ Jesus is he who spoke and commissioned Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh. But then God said, I am not just going to deliver these people just like that. Because God could have come and rained missiles on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would have let the people go 
that very day that he showed up on Mount Sinai or the burning bush. They have to learn of his way of salvation because ultimately Pharaoh is not their problem. God is their problem. So God commissioned Moses and later Aaron as mediators to go and speak to Pharaoh about the matter of his people. Moses, as someone who was raised in Pharaoh's house and was known to Pharaoh, and so he had access to him just as Queen Esther had access to King Ashwaras when she was making mediation for her people. So the mediator of salvation has to be one who is known of Pharaoh, known of King Ashwaras, someone who has access to the king. Okay? Because the mediator of salvation has to be one who is known of God, who has access, unfettered access to God. The children of Israel could not just go up and go to Pharaoh's house. But Moses could. That's why he was raised in Pharaoh's house. So the Lord Jesus is the Son of God raised in God's house and he alone is qualified to go before God on your behalf. Okay? So you and I are not qualified mediators of our own salvation. So God was teaching that salvation happens through mediation of a God Appointed mediator. So mediation right there is highly developed for us through the person of Moses and Aaron. But God said he would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. But why Exodus 10, 1 and 2? Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. <laughs> that you may know. So God has done everything that all his creation may know that he is the Lord. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would harden his own heart and not let the people go. So that God would multiply his signs in judgment. That Egypt and even Israel would know that he is the Lord and he is not like the gods of Egypt. Because Egypt had a pantheon of gods. Gods for everything. This god for the sun, for the moon, for the rain. God of locusts. I, just gods for everything. And God says, oh, I'm going to do this. And my people and Egypt will know that I am the Lord. So God is the first cause in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God is the one who caused 
Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. And Pharaoh hardening his own heart was only the result or the effect of God's own judicial hardening. So in the matter of salvation, sin and law were given by God so that God will be exalted in the salvation of his people from them. That is the point that God is saying. Because the real issue is not Egypt itself. The issue is sin, law, and judgment. And God is going to be praised in the salvation of, of his people from their sin and also in the judgment of sin in those that Christ did not redeem. And that is why in John, I think it's John 5, the Lord Jesus said, The Father loves the Son, and he has given all things to him, and even judgment, he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as the Father is honored. So the whole matter of judgment has been given to Christ, that God may be praised. Okay? Unfortunately, this matter is not understood by many who see God only as a fire marshal who did not cause the fire but has only despised Jesus to put out the fire. Like, oh, I didn't realize there was an inferno of sin down there. Jesus, what do you think we should be doing? Jesus says, okay, let me see. Maybe I can go down there and give me the biggest horse and try to put it up. That's not the proper way to understand salvation. All these things are by God's decree that he may be exalted. Okay? God is not going to bring you into his blessing apart from his grace. And there's no grace without sin. Okay? But Pharaoh was a type of God the Father, also in that he was the sovereign king of Egypt. He was the sovereign ruler of Egypt. And it is he who also hardened his own heart in not letting the people go because God was teaching us about who we are dealing with in judgment and the real condition of salvation. You and I are dealing with God in this matter. The devil is not our greatest enemy. The devil could not really do anything to us. Our sin against God and God himself is the problem. Because God will not acquit the guilty without proper satisfaction of their sin, and that is what is captured in the phrase, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and would not let the people go. God is saying, he is not going to let you go unless there's payment for sin. That's why Pharaoh is playing hard to get. It's God who is causing him to do that. Because God is teaching us something. Okay? And that's where we're going with our message. 
And so God came down with many plagues on Egypt. Ten plagues were in order. Number one plague, the plague of blood. We have messages that we've done through these messages. The plague of blood, Exodus 7. The plague of frogs, Exodus 8. And that would be number two. Number three, the plague of nets, Exodus 8 again. The plague of flies, Exodus 8. The plague of livestock, Exodus 9. The plague of boils, the plague of hell, Exodus 9. The plague of locusts, the plague of darkness, Exodus 10. And then the plague of the firstborn, Exodus 11 and 12. So the point is that God brought nine plagues upon Egypt and still the constant refrain was Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not let the people go. Why? Why was Pharaoh not letting the people go? It was not stubbornness on the part of Pharaoh. No one is stubborn enough to resist God's power. You have to know who we are dealing with here. It's not Pharaoh against King Jong-un. It's Pharaoh against God. Pharaoh cannot resist the power of God. There's not a single person who can resist the will and power of God. So it's not about the stubbornness of Pharaoh. It's about God. God is saying, salvation cannot happen apart from his appointed way. When we think of Pharaoh as some really stubborn guy, that's how you end up with the moralistic teaching, and you miss the point with the Armenian free will thinking and missing the point. Because Armenians will say, see, people are able to harden their own hearts. See what happened to Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. And God is saying, those that are in slavery to sin cannot be set free from his judgment by way of miracles or works of the law. And neither by Moses. Moses represents the law. Because we shall see that it is not Moses who set the people free. Moses did not set the people free. Because the law cannot justify a sinner before God. But that's the point. How do you escape from the hands of Pharaoh? How do you do that? Just talking is not going to help it. Moses went and talked and talked and talked. Still, Pharaoh did not let the people go. There are many issues that are involved in the matter of salvation. And they are not just mercy. The grace and mercy of God cannot set a people free unless there's payment, unless there's propitiation, unless there's satisfaction of sin. God is just not going to be merciful without the basis. There has to be basis. Mercy cannot happen apart from the satisfaction of God's justice and wrath. There has to be satisfaction to those things. The works of the law by you and me cannot 
provide satisfaction for God's justice. And that is why Paul in Romans 3 says, By the deeds of the law shall no man be justified before him, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the plagues, even in their severity, could not change Pharaoh's heart as to let the people go. Even the suffering of the people of Egypt or even the people of Israel could not cause God to set them free. Because God is not saving people because of their tears. He's not saving people because of their suffering. Because there's still hell to deal with. So if God was just about saving people from suffering, then there would not be hell. So the fact that there's hell means there's a whole lot more going on that we need to understand. So salvation is more than God saving people from their misery. It is about his glory. Okay? So, so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was the hardening of God's heart. I want you to see that parallel. Pharaoh is representing God. The heart of Pharaoh is hardened not to let the people go. And so God's heart is hardened by himself to say these are the demands of salvation. He is inflexible in his demands of what is required before he can call a people righteous. And unless what he requires has been met, there's no salvation. There's no letting go. And what does the Bible say about salvation? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Remission is cancellation. Sin cannot be cancelled from your account apart from the shedding of that blood which provides satisfaction. Sin has to be cancelled. It doesn't matter when you did it. It doesn't matter if you remember it or not. But God remembers. <laughs> cancellation. Remission of sin. There has to be. The shedding of blood. But whose blood? Exodus 11. Let's go to Exodus 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. God says, one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt and Pharaoh will let the people go. See that it is Pharaoh who lets the people go. As it is God, the Father, who justifies. It is God who sets a people free. In other words, there was something about this plague that was different from the others, from the nine. Let us hear. Verse 2 and 3, still in Exodus 11. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from a neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses is the type of Christ also here. 
and that is who Christ was in Egypt, sorry, in Israel, in his days of sojourning. So the people are ready to be set free. And God says they are not leaving their place of slavery empty-handed. God's people leave their place of enslavement to sin in riches. <laughs> now God is preaching. They leave, but remember the, the children of Israel are not benefiting from what Pharaoh is having them to do. Building cities for Pharaoh, making bricks and stuff. And God comes and says, no, they are not living empty-handed. And that is speaking to the gifts that God has freely granted and given his people because of our good neighbor, the Lord Jesus Christ. See that the children of Israel were to get stuff from their neighbors. Actually, it doesn't say neighbors. It says neighbor. So the neighbor from whom we get the free gifts is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the good neighbor by whom we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even though we have been laboring under sin, and yet we come out of here with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 of Exodus 11 and following. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of all the animals, then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. So God tells Moses about the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, even in the firstborn of Pharaoh, and says, this is going to do it. This is going to set my people free. What the nine plagues failed to do, the tenth plague would do it. Remember, Pharaoh is a type of God, the Father. And so by this, God is telling us the condition of salvation. The condition of salvation is when the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, dies in a plague of God's judgment and that is telling us that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, of the God who sits on the throne, who was pictured in the death of the firstborn of Egypt, especially the firstborn of Pharaoh, when he dies, God's people shall be set free. And how did God know this about the tenth plague? How did he know that the tenth plague would do it? Because he knows the terms of salvation. He knows the conditions of freedom for a sinner. And he is the one who has set the terms of our salvation, of our reconciliation to him. So the Lord Jesus is in the picture of the firstborn of Pharaoh. And that is a hard saying to people who do not read Pharaoh correctly. 
through the gospel lenses. The Lord Jesus is in the picture. That's why even when he was born, he also went to Egypt. He was fulfilling, following in the footsteps of what God was prophesying. This is a prophecy of the gospel. Okay? But it is part of the offense. Because if I tell people that, oh, the son of Pharaoh, the firstborn son of Pharaoh, was a picture of the Lord Jesus, people are going to get offended. <laughs> like, yeah? But it's part of the gospel offense. Verse 7 of Exodus 11, But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So even the dogs could not be barking, which means a dog cannot bark if God does not call it to bark. <laughs> God made the distinction between the Egyptians and his people Israel. That is election at play. Wherever there is a distinction, and God is making it, it's election. Because the God of the Bible is an electing God. He chooses people. And grace is a particular and discriminating grace. It is particular grace. It's electing grace. Grace has not been bestowed on all people. For them to pick it up if they feel like it. Like, okay, I think I'm going to choose Jesus today. I'm going to pick this grace today. And then tomorrow I'm going to refuse it <laughs> because I have a will to do it. <laughs> That's not true. But God says his people, his elect, shall not be touched by the plagues of judgment. They shall not go into judgment even though they are guilty of the same sins as the rest of the Egyptians. The children of Israel were offering and worshipping the same false gods of Egypt. But God says, I'm not going to judge them for it. As the elect are not judged for their sins. And this is what people are failing to preach. Those who believe God's truth about Christ cannot and shall not be judged for their sins because God already judged them. God already made a difference between them and the rest of the unsaved world. Verse 8 to 10, Exodus 11. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out and all the people who follow you. After that, I'll go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. That's Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So Pharaoh will not heed the warning until Exodus chapter 12. He will not. And that will take us to Exodus chapter 12. Verse 1. So all that was introduction. <laughs> now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, 
This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So with the announcement of the impending doom of the death of the firstborn of Egypt, God says to Israel, new beginnings, new season, new identity. A feast and its instructions are introduced to mark the beginning of a new age for Israel, the Passover feast. And we cannot understand the theology of the Passover properly without working all the prior detail in Exodus as we have been doing and tying it to the matter of sin, law, death, and condemnation. Because the Passover is given to answer to these matters, sin, law, death, and condemnation. Verse 3 Exodus 12, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamp according to the house of his father, a lamp for a household. So God introduces Israel to the lamp of sacrifice and says, On the tenth day of this month, the month of Nisan, that's the name of the month, or Abib, the month of Nisan or Abib, which is March to April, every man was to take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And that to say, if any are to be served, it would be by the lamb that has been sacrificed over them, according to the household. It is according to the household. Verse 4. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. See that instruction said, if the household is too small for the lamb, but not the lamb too small for the household. (laughs) Because Christ will never be too small for the salvation of those that he should save. Christ will never be too small. And also pay attention to according to the number of the persons. But salvation is according to the number of the persons that God gave to Christ. It is not universal as many people say. The elect are a very specific number of people given to Christ, written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's what makes the grace of God really amazing, that before God created anything, he had written down the names of the people that he loved, that he was going to save, and he had no decision in that meeting to make. You were not even invited. Uh... (laughs) And the devil was not even there even to oppose because he had not been created. So the man of salvation, to be honest, has nothing to do with you. (laughs) In the doing of it, you are just a recipient of God's goodness. And so you can't mess it up. You can't mess up something that he had nothing to do with. Okay? Verse 5. 
Exodus 12, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the gods. So the lamb was to be without blemish and a male of the first year. And I'm not sure what those who have gender confusion would say to this instruction. A male lamb, one year old. The gender confusion people say, oh, we don't know if it's male or female. But God is not confused about the matter. I always take a dig at some of the foolishness, you know. The lamb was to be male and without blemish and speaking to the qualifications of the sacrifice. This is speaking to Christ. Because Paul is going to connect this for us and say, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. To the Corinthian church, Apostle Paul says, your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lamp? Therefore, page out the old leaven, that you may be a new lamp, since you are, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. That's some wonderful stuff. Verse 7 there. Page out the old leaven, that you may be a new lamp, since you are Truly unleavened. The Corinthian church is notorious for sinning. That's the leaven that Paul is speaking to and says, stop your foolishness. But the reason you need to stop your foolishness is because you truly are unleavened. You have no sin in you, but stop your sin. But there's no sin in you. You are truly unleavened. Why? For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. That's the reason why they are truly unleavened. So every true believer is truly unleavened. As far as God is concerned, there's no sin in them. But stop your foolishness. Therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the paging out of the leaven and the Passover lamb and its sacrifice is teaching coming from Exodus chapter 12. And Paul says Christ is our Passover lamb. So whatever we have in Exodus 12, God says, now see its fulfillment in the person of Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. And as the literal yeast was removed from the house during the festival of the unleavened bread, the children of Israel could not keep yeast in their houses during the Passover and unleavened bread, which became like one feast because they immediately followed each other. And that leaven represented sin and it was to be removed from the house of God. Okay, I have some more things to say on that, but let's go to First Peter 1, 17 to 19. First Peter 1, 17 to 19. 
Peter says, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the basis of exhortations to proper conduct in God's church is not based on law, but on our relationship to Christ and what he has done to remove our sin. In First Corinthians 5, as we just read, Paul says, you page out this other foolishness because you truly are unleavened. So he's using Christ as the basis of driving your conduct. He's not using the law. And here he says, as far as your behavior, look to what God used to redeem you as your motivation. I'm not going to give you 500 other rules. I'm not going to take you back to Moses. Think about Christ. Christ has become the basis of even the instructions, exhortations to how you think and live in your life. Okay? So those who call us antinomian and stuff, honestly speaking, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand the gospel. Okay? So Christ is the one who was pictured in the Lamb of the Passover. And John the Baptist came and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think, if I remember, maybe John 1, 39, somewhere there. Is that right? 29? 129, not 39, okay. And as part of his qualification, Christ had to be the Lamb without blemish, and that means without sin. Which means, if you'd put sin to this sacrifice, that would disqualify it from being able to set God's people free. So it matters how one looks at the matter of imputation of sin to Christ. Sin was not infused or imparted to the person of Christ because that would put blemishes on him. Rather, sin was accredited or credited to him through imputation, which is a legal accounting or reckoning of its guilt. So what Christ carried as our sin was the guilty of our sin, not the infusion of sin into his person, because then you disqualify the sacrifice. Okay. So the lamb was a male of first year, one year old about, and the idea being that it was still young, and the Christ was to be cut out of the land of the living when he was about 33 years old. And the sacrifice was from, from, from the sheep or gods, and that means from the domesticated animals. Why? Because the Christ who is our high priest and sacrifice was from among men by the incarnation 
he lived among men. God, as it, as it were, had, had to be domesticated. <laughs> he had to come down from heaven and be found among men to be acquainted with the affairs and weaknesses of men and be qualified to be our high priest, tested in all things, just like we all, but without sin. Okay? And also, we have to know that Egypt was just a picture of the whole world. Egypt was a type of the world. Okay? And so, salvation has to be taught in Egypt, and that is representing what God is going to do in the fullness of time. Verse 6, Exodus 12. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. The lamb was to be kept from the 10th to the 14th of the same month for the people to get acquainted with it before they killed it. To be acquainted with that which was to die in the place. And that is why the Lord Jesus could not just be killed by Herod. Remember Herod's decree to kill all the little boys. He could not be killed because as the Lamb of God, he still had to be among the people and get acquainted with the people for the people to know him. They had to keep him for 33 years before he could be crucified. But then what would happen after the 14th of Nisan, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. That sounds strange and kind of veiled. I thought God would have said, then the whole assembly of Israel shall kill the lamps. No. He said, the whole assembly shall kill it. <laughs> As in one lamp. Okay? Kill the sacrifice. And that you say, the whole assembly of Israel shall be gathered together in the crucifixion of Christ. The one man to die as Caiaphas the high priest said in John 12, that it is expedient for the one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And so we see that the people of Israel were all gathered together against the Christ, against God's lamb to kill it, to put him to death on the Passover day. The Lord Jesus died on the Passover because he was God's Passover lamb, the fulfillment and eschatological lamb. The Lord Jesus was the last lamb of God. So the lamb was to be killed at twilight, and that is between 5 and 3 and 5 p.m. And this is about the time that the Lord Jesus Christ was the time that he died on the cross. He was put on the cross about midday, but he died between three and five. And then he had to be taken down before 6 p.m. because that would have been the beginning of the next day. Okay? 
So the instructions continued and said, verse 7, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doppers and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. The congregation of Israel were to take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they ate it. The blood was to cover the entrance to their homes. And the house in which the sacrifice is eaten is the New Testament that is in the blood of Christ. That's the house. That's the house. That's the only safe house to be in. That's the only house that has the blood that God sees. And people say, oh, it doesn't say the New Testament. Of course, that's what God is saying. (laughs) It is in this house that the blood of Christ has been sprinkled for all who are in it to be protected by it. What protects you as a believer, it is the blood of Christ that are sprinkled. So that's what God is teaching. Verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And the children of Israel were to eat the, the flesh of the sacrifice that night roasted in fire. And Jesus said, well, if you don't eat my flesh, ah, uh, Nothing to do with me. Got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like what? So the flesh had to be roasted in fire. You could not do some stew or boil it in water or eat it raw or use some Martha Stewart recipe book, Matilda. No stewing the lamb. It had to be a sacrifice that passes through the fire of God's judgment. The fire is speaking to God's judgment. Otherwise, it won't benefit you if it does not pass through God's judgment because in God's judgment is the propitiation of sin. This lamb without blemish has to pass through the fire to protect the people from God's wrath. Which means The Jesus who does not die cannot meet the righteous requirement of the law and thus cannot accomplish salvation for you. So the death of Christ is very, very important to the matter of salvation. That's why Paul came and said, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. So they were to eat the flesh with unleavened bread and that means bread without yeast. Leaven implies influence. You have to understand that. The general idea of leaven is influence, whether good or bad. So yeast influences the dough so that it causes the bread to rise. It causes the dough to rise. That's the influence. And one does not need that much yeast to that end. And God says, this bread should not be made with yeast. Because Christ Jesus is the unleavened bread, the bread that is without sin. Christ Jesus 
had no sin in his person. And any amount of leaven, any amount of sin, automatically disqualifies the sacrifice. So any amount of sin in you also disqualifies you from being a righteous person, no matter how seemingly small the sin is, because the idea of leaven is something small that causes a big influence. So even the smallest of sin, the one sin that you do one second before you die, is enough to disqualify you for heaven. If that's how God was going to do things, and condition salvation on your not sinning, or your improvement in progressive sanctification. <laughs> and they were to eat this flesh with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, I suppose to remind them of the bitterness of the days of slavery in Egypt. The bitterness of slavery to sin, or maybe the bitterness of soul that the Lord went through as he was being crucified. He was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But the bitterness could also mean the offense of the gospel. Because you cannot eat Christ and not deal with the offense. You cannot eat the flesh of Jesus, the truth of Christ, without the offense. It's impossible. If you're going to Eat the flesh of the Passover lamb, you're going to also get some bitter herbs with it. <laughs> Jesus is going to make you, ah. Uh. They were not add garlic, red, green, and yellow peppers. Go, Kroger, find them on sale. The yellow, green in a packet, like that. Like, uh, two bucks fifty for nine. They could not add onions and curry powder. It was to be eaten without any additives. Eaten only according to God's formulation. They were not to improve on it. So to say, don't go in the pantry and look for other things to add. And this speaking to the unadulterated gospel of God's free and sovereign grace and its offense. But many in our day want to add ketchup and mustard and ranch sauce to Jesus. They want some dip with it, like one is eating at an Indian restaurant where the food is so spicy. <laughs> it's so spicy hot, man. Ella and I ate at some Indian restaurant <laughs> <laughs> I had to just say, okay, uh, out of politeness, give me some container to carry my food home, brothers. But I end up eating more of the yogurt. Was <laughs> it too spicy hot? Drinking water, eating yogurt, coughing, tearing up, and sneezing. <laughs> I think it was probably a Father's Day gift too. I don't know. That's what happens to fathers. First, <laughs> you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So the whole sacrifice was to be consumed. 
And that is very important. Because the Lord Jesus did not give half of himself. You could not get some Tupperware and then leftovers. I know you guys budget and the flesh and just cutting things and putting them in the deep freezer. <laughs> God says, no, it has to be eaten whole. Here and now. Okay? Because the Lord Jesus Christ did not give half of himself or a fraction of himself. He gave himself in his fullness. And thus none of the, none of the flesh was to remain until morning. And this is also the reason why Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came and took the Lord Jesus down from the cross because the sacrifice could not remain till the next day. It had to be taken down. Okay? Remember, this is the Passover day that Jesus is dying. So that's the fulfillment of it. It's not to be left overnight. So Jesus has to be taken down. But the other two thieves on the cross were left there. But Jesus, the sacrifice, has to be taken down. That's the exodus. So you see the detail and how God is so careful to remember everything. Verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the lost Passover. Belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and stuff in hand spoke to readiness to go. They were to eat in in haste, quickly, and be ready to exit. But it also seems to me that the picture of the belt on the waist, the sandals on the feet, and the stuff are a military picture of the day and I was reminded of the weapons of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. I'll just go there. If you want, you can go with me. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 16. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of the wickedness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand Stand therefore, having gathered your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And the point being, the children of Israel were also to engage or were involved in a spiritual warfare in their sojourn out of Egypt. As we also are involved in a spiritual warfare in our exodus from this earth. Anyone who is in, involved in the exodus is going to deal with spiritual warfare. And you see that in the life of Egypt, 
sorry, of Israel especially. Just all the issues that they were having in the desert with Moses. I mean, these people wanted to go back to Egypt after having complained and cried out to God and said, deliver us, Lord. The devil was playing tricks on them. Okay? The theology of salvation was not as well developed as ours now because of the New Testament and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But surely they also were involved in spiritual warfare because the devil was there. And these minions, because those guys did not show up 2,000 years ago. <laughs> they have been around for a long while. And they've been messing up with people for a long time. So I just thought that was an interesting picture of them getting themselves up and preparing for their trip. And God saying, our weapons of warfare are not carnal, they are not fleshly, they are not really about rebuking the devil, but in the eating of the flesh of Christ, in the unleavened bread, in the offense of the gospel, in the bitter ebbs. Okay, so in other words, knowing Christ, knowing and believing the gospel is going to bring you trouble. Once you partake of Christ, you're going to find spiritual trouble. And this is how you're going to fight. You're going to fight with the very thing that has caused you to be in trouble. You're going to fight in the might of Christ. You're going to fight in the knowledge of what Christ has done. Okay? And so, in Christ Jesus, the real and true and final exodus of God's people has come. We are a people who are involved in the exodus to go to our final place, to be with the Lord. And now to the finale, verse 12. Exodus 12. God says, For I'll pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. So God was to pass through the land of Egypt in judgment, and he was to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Have you ever wondered why he would because he's going to kill people anyway. Why would he be so interested in the firstborn? Unless he was preaching. Why not the middle ones? Why emphasis on the firstborn? And how would he know which ones were the firstborn? How would he know? But he knows all things. <laughs> he knows all things. His wrath was to be on the firstborn. The firstborn of God is he who was to take the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And on that day of Christ's death, Paul said in Colossians somewhere, I think it's Colossians 2, he disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public 
spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So, when God showed up in Egypt, he judged not only Pharaoh, but also the gods of Egypt. So the gods of Egypt are pictures of the devil and his minions. Because when Christ died, the Holy Spirit also tells us that he made a public spectacle of all these principalities and powers. And this would have been energizing all the falsehood in the worship of the false gods in Egypt. That's the connection. Okay? Christ Jesus is the firstborn of God. He's the firstborn in preeminence. He's not firstborn like according to his flesh, he is a little over 2,000 years. So the firstborn of Christ Jesus is not really talking to his birth certificate. He's talking to his preeminence. Christ Jesus is preeminent in rank, in power, and honor because he is God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses and other people who don't know what they're talking about will say, see, Jesus is the firstborn of God, and that means he is not God. But they are not understanding what God is saying about Jesus. Because Jesus pre-existed the angels. But pre-existence does not mean that he's not created. Jesus is more than that. All things were made by him. Now, if you're making all things, it means you're God. Because only God makes things. Everybody else just converts things. Okay? I am a chemist. I don't make things. I only transform what is already there. I have to order chemicals from some vendor somewhere. Then I mix them and end up with something different. But I can't speak a chemical into existence. Okay? So Christ Jesus is the first born son of God who was smitten of the Father to set his people free. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Our sorrows and grief of hell, Christ has carried. Of suffering eternal, suffering and punishment, Christ has carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And now to the reason why he was smitten. The reason why the firstborn of Pharaoh was smitten. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And the stripes are not a cold or a headache. Sorry, the healing here, sorry. The healing, you know, the Pentecostals, if you tell them anything about sickness, oh, by stripes, 
Oh, by his stripes are healed. The Holy Spirit is not talking about headache. He's talking about salvation. By his stripes on the cross, we have been saved. We have been healed of all our sicknesses of sin, death, and condemnation. Okay? Let's go to verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God then told Moses that the blood shall be the sign for them on the houses that they were in. Sign for you for what? That when I pass through to strike the firstborn of Egypt, you will not be struck. That you are safe from my judgment. See what God did not say. God did not say, you shall look at your sinning less and less as your sign of salvation. See your tithing record as the sign. See your long prayer nights. God did not put that as a condition. That is the legion of men and women who are ignorant of God's way. God says, look at the blood. In other words, look at the Christ who is in the blood. Look to that propitiation that is in the blood of Christ and looking is faith. Looking is faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The sin that easily ensnares is unbelief. Because he answers that in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, unbelief causes you to look away from Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, or perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So looking is faith. So the true believers are to look to the blood with the eyes of faith. Why? What is faith? And why is faith important? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. Now, what's his name? Kenneth Copeland, he did a message called Now Faith. I, I can never, Now Faith. Now Faith. To him, there's something called Now Faith. There's a Now Faith and some other faith. <laughs> now faith. Now here is a conjunction. It's connecting ideas from the previous chapter to the next. Now faith is the substance of things hopeful. The evidence of things not seen. The children of Israel were to look at the blood by faith. 
Because they were to look at the blood in the darkness. Not during the day because God was going to pass through in the night. Because faith is the substance, the content of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. The thing that is not seen and hoped for is Christ Jesus. And everything that he has done. So the children of Israel could not see the blood in the darkness of the night. But they knew that it was there. They knew that the blood was there. And that was to be sufficient for them. Just to know that the blood was there. Even though they were afraid, they knew what God had done with the nine plagues. So they were in their people who were so afraid. They were so afraid. That night, in their homes, so afraid, but their fear did not reduce the power of the blood that was on the door. Doubting, like, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. All those people were sinners, that's why they needed the blood. And the most important thing that God said, and that is misunderstood in much of religion is that it is God who said, I will see the blood. Not ourselves. God says, I see the blood. And we are called to know by faith that the blood is there. And it is doing what it was given to do, which is to protect God's people from the judgment of sin. But many we want to draw you from the testimony of looking at the blood as enough and have you looking to your belly button for the blood. Okay? Looking to progressive sanctification as the basis of your assurance of salvation to see if you're doing better and better every month, every year. That's the theology of many of these Reformed preachers, even some of the sovereign grace preachers will say that. You have to look at the pattern of your life. Is it getting better or what? Did, is that what God said? God said, look at the blood. The blood. Your testimony has to be in the blood. God did not say the blood is sprinkled on your belly button for navel gazing. It was to be sprinkled and the doorposts and the lentils. Because every time that you look away from this truth and you go back to the law, you will always feel unsaved. Okay? So your assurance is not in what you feel, but what you know about what God says about the matter. I had some person on Facebook tell me a few days ago that they don't feel saved. And, and, and it's very difficult to be a preacher, man. You have to be so patient with people. Who told you you're supposed to be feeling salvation? You have to believe what God says. Believe what he says. He says, look at the, to the blood. You don't feel anything. 
if anything is summer, you're going to feel a lot of heat. If you want to feel something, you're going to feel the heat. You have to know the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So you have to know, you have to learn, understand the truth. If you're not feeling saved, (laughs) or you're not feeling free, it's because you do not know the truth that you ought to know. Okay? God said, he will see the blood, and then because of the blood, he will pass over them in judgment. So he sees the blood, not us. He sees the work of Christ and what it means. That's what God is saying. He is satisfied with the shedding that Christ did of his blood. And this is the blood that he has sprinkled to us through faith. So essentially, faith in Christ is looking to the blood of Christ and saying, it is enough for my justification. It is enough for my holiness. Because there's no justification without holiness. There's no holiness without justification. They are all in Christ. Again, it is God who sees the blood. And God sees the blood of his son. It glows in the darkness of your sin. Remember, it's dark. So you need to have blood that God sees. It is the only blood that is visible to him. And religion will come and try to give you some other blood. Okay? Even blood transfusions. But there's only one kind of blood that works. The blood of the firstborn son of God who has become the lamb of God who takes away the sin of his people. The unleavened bread without any yeast. Do you see now that God is continuously building the testimony of Christ in Exodus. We have the mediator. We have the mediation of Moses. Now we have the death of the firstborn. Now we have the lamp and its blood. So the whole testimony, the puzzle pieces are coming together. And this son and his blood were preached by God in the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son and the death of the Passover lamb as the only condition of setting his people free. So you see, the death of the firstborn and the lamb have come together in one. They are now happening simultaneously. In other words, something has to die in the place of God's people for their exodus from slavery to happen and for them to be spared of God's judgment. In other words, substitutionary atonement is God's gospel. Christ dying in the place of his people, God imputing the righteousness of Christ to them is the only way to get out of God's judgment. There's no other. Okay? Verse 14, and that's our last verse. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So the children of Israel were to remember the Passover. 
would say probably the greatest of the feasts of the Old Testament, the Passover is or was. And now to its fulfillment, Luke 22, 14 to 20. Luke 22, 14 to 20. When the hour had come, <laughs> it's the Passover. John is also, Luke is speaking to fulfillment of the hour of the Passover because the Passover lamb has to be given, it has to be sacrificed. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have decided, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So the Lord is on his way to the cross as the Passover lamb of God. And he says, when you think of the Passover, you think of me. The Passover is an everlasting ordinance for God's people because it ties them back to the day and means of their exodus from their slavery to sin. Okay? So, the matter of the Passover, I still have a lot of gospel nuggets. We're going to do a lot of messages in chapter 12 and 13 and connect a lot of pieces, but the point that I want you to understand about the Passover and the gospel and salvation is that God is teaching in pictures, in Exodus, about the matter of what he requires for your salvation. And so he purposefully put his people under slavery and caused them to suffer. And so the things that cause people to be in suffering in the matter of salvation is sin, is death, is condemnation. And the only way out of that is if God himself shows up and he fulfills the requirement for your salvation. And that requirement was fulfilled in the giving of the Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn. So the Passover lamb is also the firstborn of God. The Passover lamb is the firstborn of God. When he has died, then salvation has happened. So all you need to know is, did the Christ die? If the Christ is dead, then it is well. <laughs> because the righteous requirement 
of the law was fulfilled. All the terms of the salvation, terms of meeting with God, were completely met in him. All this other stuff that people are saying and doing is just playing gimmicks. They are playing church. They're not preaching Christ. Okay? We can talk about exhortations and people come and say, well, anti-law, yeah, antinomians and stuff like that. Those things don't mean a single thing. It's just a sign that people don't know. Okay? So God has fulfilled his own requirement for your salvation. Therefore, it is well with your soul. If anything happens to you today, you are out of Egypt. <laughs> you are so out of Egypt. You're going to go all the way to glory because there's nothing else for you to add. Okay? You can't miss this thing. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for these many words that you've given us to learn of the issues, the matters of our salvation, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the firstborn of God pictured as the firstborn of Pharaoh, who when he died in that night of judgment, God's people were set free. Thank you for the Passover lamb. Thank you uh, for his death. Thank you for causing us to eat it by faith. Thank you, Lord, that you continue to see this blood, the blood that does not lose its power. We honor you for all this that you gathered you gather this morning. Be with them and teach them this truth. We honor you. We thank you. In all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. See ya. <laughs>